welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Just as we each bear the image of God, our marriages bear the image of God's relationship with the church. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, The Ten Commandments, with this sermon entitled, Do Not Commit Adultery, which covers Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. O God, who gives generously to those who ask, we ask that you would, understanding, that we may keep your word, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and instead give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth, amen. And Father, I pray that as we um, embark on some very sensitive uh, subject matter here, Lord, just meet with us, we pray. Holy Spirit, do what you do. We invite you to, uh, to, um, to come and press upon our hearts the very presence of Christ, softening hearts, opening eyes to see your beauty. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps there has been uh, no greater sin in the history of the church than that of sexual sin in the, in the sense of perhaps there has been no sin, and I think this is probably true, there has been no sin that has wreaked havoc on God's people more than that of sexual sin. It's, it's where the enemy, from the earliest times of human existence, where the enemy seem, seems to, uh, to, uh, to grab us and insert his claws the most and, uh, and rip us apart. It's, as I said, it's nothing new. As I was reading Kevin DeYoung's book, The Ten Commandments, that I've referenced several times in this series, he referenced uh, John Witherspoon's church. He did his doctoral work on Witherspoon's ministry. He was an 18th century Scottish pastor and preacher. And uh, he just basically said that as he was studying Witherspoon's session minutes, which that would have, must have been riveting, session minutes are when the elders would meet and discuss all the various items and actions of the church. When it came to shepherding issues, those issues that require church intervention and even sadly at times church discipline, that the overwhelming amount of issues concerning where the church needed to get involved were issues of sexual sin and, and adultery. In, uh, in his book, Calvin's Company of Pastors, Scott Manich examines the, uh, the consistory minutes, it's another kind of like session minutes, from Geneva, where, where Calvin pastored for a little over six decades, from 1542 to 1609. During those years, those 60 plus years, there were over 1,500 disciplinary cases dealing with issues of sin around sex and adultery. Here's the point. The point is that some things and some sins never change. It's a part of how we because of the fall, because of sin in us, it's, it's one of the primary ways in which we struggle. And it's important to realize, as DeYoung remarks, that 
At no age in the history of the church, including in the world for that matter, have human beings excelled in this area. Human beings have anything but excelled in controlling their sexual desires. And I would say that just to bring it close to home, uh, this is true here. As I have been updated recently over the last year or so on the number of shepherding um, relationships that we currently have, where we're walking through with people very hard, difficult things. The vast majority of those are issues within marriages, many of which are centered around this very issue of sexual sin and adultery. So it suffice it to say that from the very beginning, uh, we have struggled mightily with the seventh commandment. Seventh commandment very just very simply, concisely states, you shall not commit adultery. But as we learned last week, we'll hopefully learn the same thing this week, which is uh, it's not everything that we think it is on the surface. Meaning that even if you have not committed adultery in action, all of us have committed it in heart. I said this last week about the sermon on murder. And if you missed that one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's so very important to understand how anger is at the root of murder. I said this last week, I said many people throughout time have killed with their hands. All of us, every single one of us have killed with our hearts. And there's only one human who's ever walked the face of the earth who never did either one of those things, hands or heart. And he's our only hope. So this week, I would say almost the, exactly, uh, the, exact, the exact same thing, except changing murder to adultery. We just simply say that many people throughout time have committed adultery with their bodies. But all of us, every single one of us, has committed adultery with our hearts. And there's only one. There's only one who never did either. And he, indeed, is our only hope. Because of the heaviness of this, of this uh, teaching today, in the, the way in which this is going to hit so many of us so very personally. I want to go ahead and give you where we're landing, the hope. Here's the hope. The hope is this, that uh, Jesus is our faithful husband. Jesus is a faithful husband to an adulterous bride. The, the, the most common way we as God's people are described in Scripture is, one, that we are his bride, but sadly, the most common way that we're described in our sin is that we're adulterers spiritually, that we keep running after things other than God himself, and that in that we have our spiritual adultery. And so it's in the midst of God's people from the very beginning, the people of Israel, into now the people of the church, it's in the midst of that reality that we are, yes, the bride of Christ, but we are adulterers in our hearts. In that context, Jesus is the faithful, time and time and time and time again, the faithful husband. It's this Jesus who resurrects dead hearts and will one day resurrect dead bodies who are dead in Christ. It's this Jesus who authors resurrection who resurrects broken marriages and who resurrects and renews sin-sick souls. That the world would convince us, that the enemy would convince us, and that we would even try to convince ourselves is beyond hope. But not for Jesus. The faithful husband 
to his adulterous bride. We'll end there. But before we get there, we have to start with asking a couple of really important questions and to be able to really determine what it means to not commit adultery, we have to start with asking a really fundamental, critical question, which is, well, what is marriage? If we're, not, if we're to not commit adultery, then we have to understand what is marriage. And so to do that, we go to Genesis chapter two. We go to the very beginning, just like last week, to understand anger and how anger is the root bulb of murder. And we gotta go back to the very beginning and look at the first murder. In the same way, we gotta go back to the very beginning and look at the first marriage to understand what's at the heart of adultery. So in Genesis two, God institutes marriage. It's important to say this, marriage is not something that we came up with. Marriage is God's design, it's God's idea. He thought of marriage, he instituted marriage and he gave it its parameters not to be exclusive or to be to create something in which we struggle with but actually so that if we are called to marriage we actually flourish within the way he created it so in other words God's design in its original purpose and intent and in its original experience for man and woman before sin came into the world was the way through which we flourish so it's God's design and idea of marriage and look at what he says and in, in uh, we'll read just a part of Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 18 it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now here's what's going on here. I've already mentioned God is the one who instituted marriage. He's the one who came up with it, created it, gave it to us. And we see here something God is doing to help man, Adam in particular, but now all of us through the scriptures see part of what he was up to in giving Eve to Adam. So this, this passage starts off by saying that God recognized it was not good for man to be alone. Now, this is not God realizing there was something incomplete in his creation and going, oh no, I've got to do something. This is actually for the benefit of Adam that he would go through this process that he goes through because he knows that he's going to create woman for man. But he takes Adam through a process to understand the beauty, the awesomeness of what God is doing here. What he does is this, is he says, uh, there's, not a, there's not a helper fit for man. Now, now listen, verse 18, there's not a helper fit for man. I'll come back to this. Take a caveat, step into the side. Here's the side. That word helper is the, is the Hebrew word azer, E-Z-E-R. That word is interesting because it shows up most often in the Old Testament in reference to God. Interesting. Here's why that's interesting. 
Because there are many who would try to convince you today that when God says helper, or when they join that with Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter five, that, that wives are to submit to their husbands, that what God is actually saying, or that what the Bible is actually saying, they would try to say this, that he's saying that women, it's, a, it's, a, it's an abusive teaching because it's saying that women are inferior to men and we should not believe that. Let me ask you a question then. If that's what God's up to, then why would he use the term that he used for woman for himself most often? If it's a term of inferiority, why would he consistently say, I am the helper of Israel? I am the helper of, of my people. I'm the, in other words, if it's inferior, then he's saying that he's inferior. He would not do that. We know that he's supreme. So actually by calling woman helper, he's actually saying that there is just as much dignity and worth and value in woman as there is man. And when we connect that to Ephesians 5, we begin to understand that submissiveness does not in any way suggest inferiority. But it's actually the way in which, here's the first part that I'm going to talk to you about. It's actually pointing to the way in which man and woman complement each other. First, marriage is complementary. Not with an eye, complimentary, like where you would say, hey, you look great today, or well done, or that should be a part of your marriage for sure, but with an E, complimentary, meaning perfectly together, a perfect partnership. Because now, jumping back into where I took away from the caveat there. So listen, God leads Adam through a process, and the process is, he says, look, you, there's not a helper fit for you, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bring all the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and I'm gonna bring them to you. And the implication of the text is this, see if any of those are a helper fit for you. And as you do that, name them, which must have been just exhausting and fun, I guess, come up with names. But it, it gets to the end of that, and the implication of the text, the subtext is this, Adam is depressed. He's going, you brought to me all of these creatures, and none of them, none of them are fit for me. And so God puts Adam to sleep. And the first thing he sees when he wakes up is Eve. Don't miss how ecstatic Adam is. In your Bibles, it's indented on both sides to mark it as poetry. Perhaps some have, suge some have suggested, perhaps Adam sung this. He was so elated by what he's beholding, not just in her physical beauty, but because he is able to sense deep within him that there is a complementary reality going on here, that God has created something awesome that we would fit together, that we would complement each other. And so he says, uh, right there in your, in your Bible, in verse 23, it says, this is at last bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, he is rejoicing over the reality of this compliment that is now his. And he is hers. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful reality. God had said in verse 18, as I've already mentioned, that it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Kevin DeYoung sums it up, I'll quote him again, where he says, God created marriage in such a way that a man and woman uniquely fit together as complements for each other. So three things I'm gonna give you on marriage, I've already given you one. One is that it's complementary. Secondly, it's reflective. 
And what I mean by that is I want you to just think of the, the key word, the main word here is union. That in our union with one another as husband and wife, we would reflect the union that we have with God. Did you catch that? That in our union with one another, we would reflect the union that we have with God. In other words, there's something so significant about a marriage relationship because it's pointing to something even deeper and more profound. That on the surface, physically speaking, yes, that we would be united to one another physically in a way that we, we would be united with no one else. It's only within the context of marriage. It's, it's exclusive, it's set apart. Why would God do that? Was he, again, was he just trying to put restrictions on things just for the fun of it? No, he wanted something to mirror, to reflect the union that we have with him. In other words, to say, you are to have a, an intimacy of union together physically, emotionally, and spiritually that is bound just you and this person within the confines of a covenant such that it would reflect the covenant relationship of intimacy that you have with union with God. In, in other words, as you go, and we'll get to this in just a moment, but as you go and fill the earth and multiply and you put out image bearers in the earth, that as you do that, they would see that the marriages that they have as husband and wife would in some small way reflect the greater marriage that they have with God. I've already said it. This is the biggest way and the most common way that we are referred to in Scripture, that God's people are his bride. And it is a deeply intimate union that we have with God through faith in Christ. Paul teaches us in Romans that we are united to Christ. He teaches us in many places in the word that we are united to him. There is union with the Lord through Jesus. And we are to reflect that union in our marriages. Let me read to you just a couple of passages, scripture references that teach us this. In Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, he says this. He says, in the context of a people who have been adulterous in their spiritual lives, but also physically, they've been sleeping with other people that aren't their spouses. He says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? He's talking about marriage. And he's saying that there's this spiritual reality that he made them one, yes, physically and emotionally, but there's the deposit of the spirit such even in a way that there is a spiritual reality of oneness that happens between husband and wife consummated in the marriage bed, yes, but pointing to a greater union that we have with God. Paul, referencing this very verse in, in Genesis 2, 24, he says in, in Ephesians 5, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he pivots here in a way that if you're reading this in the context of Ephesians 5, you feel like it just comes out of nowhere. You go, what? How do we make that turn? Because it's all been about earthly marriage. And then he says this, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God institutes marriage. Don't you know they were so confused, by the way, when he says to them in Genesis 2, 24, when he says, now, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I, I love to picture, this is just my humorous. I like to read humor into scripture sometimes because these were humans. Adam and Eve just look at each other and look around and go, who's he talking about? Leave who? 
They're the first humans. There are no father and mother. What, what is he doing? Well, he's projecting. He's, he's instituting something that will be true that isn't yet. There's such a deep bond that's going to exist between you and Eve, Adam, that you will leave your father and your mother and you will hold fast to her and you'll be united to her physically, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually. It's reflective. But third, marriage is procreative. I mentioned this verse here a moment ago, but we go back even one, one more chapter into Genesis 1, and after God created man and woman, he gives them the first mandate. And he says this, he says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In that verse that I read a moment ago from Malachi, the very next sentence is this, where after he said, did he make them, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? He says this, and what was the one thing God was seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. In other words, it's certainly not the only reason that, husband, that Christian husbands and wife enjoy the marriage bed. It's not the only reason to procreate. God in his beauty of marriage created something that we would enjoy, the intimacy that we would enjoy that reflects the joy that we have with him, enjoying what he's given us in that intimate union. But it's not less than procreation, that we would fill the earth with people who love and honor the Lord. Now, let me say this. It's at this juncture right here that if you're listening right now and you're single or you're infertile, there's a temptation at this very moment to, to think that what I'm saying is that there's something better that you're missing out on or that even more sinisterly, that there is something that God has for you that you can't accomplish and therefore you're less than. Please don't believe that. Here's why. God created marriage as one of the ways in which we reflect him. It's not the only way. It's one of the ways in which we image him to the earth. It's not the only way. How do we know that? The greatest argument ever for why you should be totally content with where God has you. Because Jesus is the greatest expression of human flourishing that we have ever known or ever will know. And he was single and celibate. I am not suggesting that Jesus missed out on anything that would be a part of human flourishing. God calls us, some of us, into singleness, and as hard as it may be, he calls some of us into infertility. Rachel and I walked that path for several years, and it's so incredibly hard but you are not less than. You are not missing out on something better that God has for you. He writes every one of our stories uniquely and pointedly and purposefully. And his love for you is just as extravagantly awesome as it is for someone else. And I want you to fight to believe that. For those that he does call to marriage, He's, giving a, he's given us a responsibility within that context and within that framework to image him, to reflect him, to procreate, even if we can't 
have children of our own, what might it look like to pursue a call to parenting in some other way? Having established that baseline of what is marriage, now we ask the question, what is adultery? If God is commanding us to not commit adultery, then we have to be clear about what what it is. I'll give you a three-layered answer to that, to this question. The first one will be very quick. Adultery is what you think it is. It is unfaithfulness of one spouse to another. It is the blatant dismantling of what God has joined together. Uh, Put in modern terms, it's cheating on your spouse. So at the very first outer layer, adultery is what you think it is. But the second layer in of the three layers, I would term it as this. Adultery is broader than you think it is, what you might think. Jesus taught and is recorded for us in Matthew, uh, uh, excuse me, in Mark 7. Jesus taught uh, on this matter, among others, when he said this, recorded for us in verse 20 through 23, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. There's so much that we could pull out of this verse, so many things that Jesus hits on in such a short sentence. But I just want to pull one Greek word out to help us understand that what Jesus is pressing into is very broad in application. Meaning it's not just, and this is where the seventh commandment becomes, we, become, we start realizing, oh, this isn't just for the married. Because it's not just adultery in the classic sense of the word. Because one of the words that, G, that Jesus uses there that we translate sexual immorality is the Greek word pernia, which where we get our modern word pornography. And that word, when it is found in classic Greek literature that would have been around at the time of Jesus, that word is most commonly referring to sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. And that word fornication is a word that is loaded with meaning where it's not just adultery or sexual immorality, but it's adultery connected to idolatry, meaning that adultery and sexual immorality and fornication is ultimately a heart matter. That's why Jesus says that out of the heart, these things come. So here's the point. I just wanna simply make this point. Time doesn't allow me to go into deeper application here, but the point is this. When Jesus uses this word pornea, you'll notice that he also uses a word, two, two words later, that we interpret adultery. What is he saying with this word that we, that we translate sexual morality? Is he saying that there's so much more going on in the human heart as it pertains to the breaking of the seventh commandment than just adultery? It's all kinds of realities within the scope of what God has designed and what runs against that. The way DeYoung says it is this, in condemning sexual immorality, Jesus was forbidding every kind, don't miss this, every kind of deviation from his created order. 
male and female, and how we engage with one another sexually. So adultery is broader than you might think. Third, adultery is deeper than you might think. Deeper than you might think. This is where we end back up, where we ended up last week with murder in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching us once again, and we get to a point where once we've read it, we go, Jesus, why did you have to go there? Did you really have to press it in at that level? Because I was actually convincing myself that because I haven't behaviorally, outwardly done this sin, I thought I was in the clear. But then Jesus says, no. No, he presses it deep into the heart level when he teaches this. In Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28, he says, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> oh, really? Remember I said last week, the law does a couple of things for us. One, it shows us the heart of God. It shows us the standard of God. It shows us what holiness look, looks like, and we marvel at it, and we say that it is good, but it also exposes us and crushes us. It shows us that no matter how hard we try, we are law breakers at the core of who we are, desperately in need of the one who fulfills the law for us. Just as anger last week lies at the root of murder, lust lies at the root of adultery. And we begin to see, just as I mentioned a moment ago, that this command isn't just for those who are married, it's for all of us. Jen Wilkin, who I said it last week, I have been so encouraged by her book, 10 Words to Live By, she says this. She says that the sixth command prohibited, prohibited regarding our neighbors as expendable the seventh prohibits regarding our neighbor is consumable. Lust dehumanizes a person, rendering them an object to be consumed by lustful desire rather than an image bearer to be honored. This is why Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. It's important for us to know it's, it's not sinful to recognize another human being as attractive, as beautiful. It's, that's not sin. To see someone else and say, wow, that's, that's a beautiful person. It's a handsome guy, whatever it may be. That's, that's not sinful. When it becomes the breaking of the seventh commandment, when it becomes lust in the heart, is when that looking becomes lingering, becomes longing. Where we look, and then we linger upon what we have looked at and then when that lingering gives birth to longing, that that person now becomes an object. The imagination has been given birth to realities that were never ours, never meant to be ours in God's design. Three practical ways, quickly here, and running out of time. Three practical ways to fight lust. First, guard your eyes. 
uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus taught in the same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, just a little bit later, he says that the eye is the lamp of the body. He goes on to explain how whatever we allow in through our eyes determines whether we are being filled with light or with darkness. So what are we looking at? I wanna to read to you just a few statistics that sometimes, I don't know, sometimes people with statistics, they go, yeah, that just overwhelms me, but just to, get, just to paint a picture. What are we looking at? Well, 90% of children ages eight to 16 have viewed pornography. The largest consumers are boys ages 12 to 17 years old. 70% of men ages 18 to 34 visit a pornographic site or app in a typical month. Lest you think that this is only for people out there and not for people who might be up here, 50% of pastors regularly admit to regularly looking at pornography. Lest you think this is only an issue for men, one in six women struggle with porn addiction. Pornography is, I think, in my 20 plus years of engaging in ministry, 15 of those, or 13 of those being with college students, I think that it is the number, way, number one way in which the enemy is destroying us from within and therefore destroying our marriages. It's not, sadly, uh, the, the statistics are not better inside the church than outside the church. Perhaps, What's even worse for inside the church is because we're so embarrassed by the reality of what we engage in, we hide it more than people outside the church. And in our hiding, we become more and more discouraged, depressed, and ultimately destroyed. We have to guard our eyes, but we also have to guard our mouths. What do I mean by that? Well, there is no affair, there is no adulterer whoever began that work of adultery without speaking in some way. Meaning, it often begins with what we think is meaningless flirtation in the break room. Meaningless, inconsequential, flirty texts that are sent between someone that's not your spouse. It's typically through the mouth, through the spoken word or through the typed word or something there. It's very rare if ever that adultery is birthed out of the lack of words. There have been times where I have told uh, people and I have said to myself, I would rather be seen as someone who is rude and standoffish than to engage in a conversation that I know might tempt me. It's not worth it. Destroying your marriage is not worth it. Don't plant seeds that will become fruit that you don't want to ripen one day. We are foolish to think that it won't, that seeds will not turn into fruit, especially if we keep watering them. Lastly, kill, kill with the sword. The biggest lie, the biggest lie that the enemy feeds us in this realm with sexual sin, pornography, things like that, the biggest lie is that it, it is such a monster, it can't be killed. It can only be managed and that's not true. How do we know? Because the Bible teaches us. 
In many places, I'll just read one, Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Paul seemed to believe that this that feels so insurmountable, that feels unbreakable, these chains of sexual sin that grip us and bind us and choke us to death, he believed and taught that those could actually be killed. And I smile because we don't believe that. For those of us who have been trapped in the chains of sexual sin for so long and we can't break the chain, yes, the reality is you can't, but Christ in you can. He, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it's why, just to tie into how we started this morning, it's why we need church. It's why we need each other. It's why we need membership because I don't wanna fight that battle alone, but you and me together, locking arms, we, we create a chain as it were that's greater than the chain of sin as we lock arms and hearts together to fight together with the power of God's word to actually slay the giant of sexual sin, this wreaking havoc on us, our children, our homes, our marriages, and we can and should through the power of Christ have the victory. We can. We don't have to believe the lie from the one who is the greatest liar of all time, who convinces us that we can only manage it. If you try to manage sin, sin will always win. Kill it. The primary way we kill sin is with the word of God. What, is, who, what does the scripture say the word of God is? For the word, Hebrews 4, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does all that mean? It just means use God's word, know it, memorize it, tell it to yourself, tell it to each other, use God's word, love God through his word in such a way that sin doesn't stand a chance. And some of you are going, wow, that's very Pollyannish of you, Jeff. I've tried that. I've tried it, it doesn't work, I get it, it is a journey. It is a battle of slaying and cutting and piercing and stabbing over and over and over again, every day until we're with Jesus. Don't give up the fight, which leads us to the last question we have to ask, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power for the ability to fight, why? Because who is Jesus? Remember where we started? Jesus is our faithful husband. Jesus is the one who will never forsake. It doesn't matter what sin you have committed. It doesn't matter what you have done sexually. It does not matter. Jesus will continue to pursue you. He is the faithful husband. And the one who resurrects dead bodies and the one who resurrects dead hearts can resurrect broken marriages and longs to renew sin-sick souls that think they are beyond hope. This Jesus came and he allowed himself to be slayed so that we through him would have the power to slay sin. Why? Because the sin slayer himself dwells within us. If you believed upon Christ as your savior, he is the one who has the power, not you. And he longs, you talk about longing, his longing for you to walk in obedience to him and to kill sin is greater than any longing you'll ever have for sin. Surrender to him, walk with him, let him do that expulsive work within you and give you a greater affection. To those who have been 
caught in the mess and in the brokenness of adultery. There's hope for you. There's hope for your marriage. Do you have a biblical right to divorce if adultery has happened? Yes, you do. God, Jesus taught that. And maybe that's where he's leading, but I'll say this. There's marriage after marriage after marriage that has felt the grips of adultery that has come out on the other side, reconciled and renewed to the glory of God. Don't give up hope. For those caught in addiction, there is great hope for you. Surrender to the sin slayer, let him kill your sin. Walk in newness of life. For the person who has given themselves fully to a lifestyle outside of the design of God, for you sexually, there's a better story for you. Believe, believe me, there's a better story for you. Culture out there is not gonna tell you that. Your own heart's not gonna tell you that. But the one who created you tells you that. The one who created you tells you that there is a better story for you based on my design and whether you believe it or not, it's true. There's great hope for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that hope is only realized, renewal is only realized, reconciliation is only realized if there is first, don't miss this, if there is first recognition and repentance. If you are the offender, if you are the one who has committed adultery, either in, in practice, in real life, in physical realities, or in your own heart, if you're the offender, you have to recognize your sin, confess it, and repent. Repentance just simply means turning from sin through the power of Christ within you. I heard it said many years ago, it was in the day and age before, um, before internet, so this was the context, so I think you'll get it. But it said the greatest thing that would ever happen to us, the, the biggest blessing that you and I could ever have is that our sin, our deepest, darkest sins, anything and everything we've ever done or committed or omitted would be broadcast on the five o'clock news. And you go, that sounds horrible. How could that be the greatest thing that ever happened to me? Well, it would be horrible. It would be mortifying. It would be deeply embarrassing, but you'd be exposed. You wouldn't have to hide anymore. You wouldn't have to pretend anymore and you could just say, hey, you've seen it all now. I desperately need a savior. I desperately need Jesus. We wanna help you in that, by the way. We wanna help you find Jesus to be who he is. If you are in a place where you just know, man, your heart is beating so hard right now because God is putting his finger on you in this sermon and you need to confess. You need to tell your spouse something that you've done. And you're terrified to do it, but you need to believe that the Lord, not the enemy, that that's the best thing that you could do, that renewal doesn't come from hiding. It comes from confession and exposing the darkness. And, and we want to help you in that. We have pastors and shepherdesses who are ready and available. Randy Schlichting and Kelly Ward, please reach out to them. You'll find their website, their, their uh, emails on the website. Let us help you experience the freedom, the pathway to freedom that only can be found in Jesus. Recognize and repent. And in so doing, be renewed. We're gonna do that now. We're gonna confess corporately aloud together and then we're gonna sing. I'm looking at the time. This happens way too often in the second service, by the way. Nine o'clock service, I'm like on point. 1045 service, I'm like, I don't know. I get going, forgive me. You're gonna be a little late to lunch. We're gonna sing because I think you're gonna to wanna to sing the song that we're singing. We're gonna confess first. Let's read this aloud together. Father, we confess 
that we are an adulterous people, some of us in action, all of us in heart. We recognize that our eyes are the lamp of our bodies, yet we have allowed darkness to fill us through what we have fixed our eyes upon. Forgive us, O Lord. Break the chains of sexual sin that feel unbreakable. Soften our hearts that we may repent. Turn our eyes to you, Jesus, our faithful husband. Thank you for your mercy that flows to us through the blood you shed on the cross. Your grace abounds. Praise be to God. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.